0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. At the roundabout, take the second exit onto Kingdom Way, then arrive at your destination. I'm just around the corner from the Jehovah's Witness headquarters. It's called Bethel. And quite honestly, it's really intimidating to approach off the roundabout. It's got these giant blue signs saying JW.org, And you just know that once you start down that road, they've immediately seen you. And the reason I'm here is that I want to deliver a letter. It's a letter that's been a long time in the making. And it started with a tip-off, which said that inside the buildings on this campus that I'm next to, there's a library of information. It's the kind of thing that could be used to protect children. It even includes admissions by paedophiles. And what this tip-off said is that this has been going on for decades. So we're driving up the drive and I can see there's a security kind of box with a security guard. And there is an intercom to speak into, but it's really high so you have to get out of the car. So that's what I'm about to do. Catherine Rushton, I'm a reporter from the Telegraph newspaper. I was hoping I could speak to someone to deliver this letter. This is Call Bethel. Episode 1 The Tip Off. I'm Catherine Rushton, and I've spent the best part of a year working on this story with my colleagues in the Telegraph Investigations team. Claire Newell, Sophie Barnes, Janet Easton and Jack Leather. We get all sorts of messages into our joint investigations inbox. Rather, a lot of it spam emails, trying to sell us shipping containers or offering us ways to improve our Google ranking. We go through it diligently anyway, because, well, that's where stories might come from. I'll always live in hope that I'll open it one day and find that a whistleblower has handed us a blinding scoop with all the evidence right there, neatly tied up with a bow. But the reality is that most of the interesting news tips to that inbox fall into a kind of grey zone. They contain nuggets of information that sound like they could amount to an important story, but only if they're true. And it's our job as journalists to work that out. The email that started us off on this investigation definitely fell into this grey zone. It arrived at the end of August last year on a day when our messy office had become uncomfortably hot. My colleague Sophie was the first to open it. The person emailing had something she wanted us to look into. Hello, Jill speaking. Oh hi
1: Jill,
0: this is Sophie from The Telegraph. How
1: are you? Hello, lovely to
0: speak to you. The sender was a former Jehovah's Witness called Jill Owens and she said she was writing about a matter of great importance. Jill claimed that there was a problem with the way that Jehovah's Witnesses handle allegations of child abuse. This sort of thing has been well documented in other religions, the Catholic Church for instance, but she said there was something else. So The bit that jumped out to me was the aspect about the secret abuse database. She claimed the organisation has had a documented policy of compiling data on all abuse allegations, but that these were not always shared with the police. So then you find that reporting is sporadic at best um, and fairly often doesn't happen. What she was claiming, that there was a secret database of abusers, was hard to fathom. But if she was right, if it was true then it would be staggering and has the potential to shake the very foundations of the Jehovah's Witness organisation.
2: We obviously need like a kind of overarching strategy for what we're trying to find out because it's generally an interesting subject area but um, we know we want to find the database. Yes, or if it exists. If it exists. But I think we almost need like a kind of roadmap for like how we're going to try and find the database. Yeah, that's
1: a good idea.
0: The first step was to work out if it even sounded possible to people who know about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and to try and understand their world. We start in the way that we would with any investigation, searching through press cuttings to build a list of names of people who might help us. Uh, and then I've been doing cuts, and I've kind of I'm building a document of uh, basically people to talk to, but also interesting right. points, like you know. Then we track those people down writing letters, knocking on doors or sending messages over Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn in the hope that they'll talk to us. One former Jehovah's Witness passes us a phone number for another and that person passes us on to someone else so that very soon we have a network of sources that piece by piece we hope will help us build a picture of what we want to know.
2: I've got a couple of numbers for him actually because he keeps changing it. Uh, uh, and right.
1: So to I'll, gi- I'll give you the names obviously. Uh... Well, I, have, mm. I can get you the exact dates for this and I can even put you in touch with the victim. If you like.
0: When I began looking into the Jehovah's Witnesses, I didn't know a great deal about them. I knew that they knock on doors to spread the word, that they refuse blood transfusions and they don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas. I now know they're an incredibly tight-knit community who trust each other implicitly. But rarely spend time with people who are outside the faith. It's hard to speak frankly to people who are still Jehovah's Witnesses because they think everyone else is worldly and could be doing Satan's work. Jehovah's Witnesses regard
2: secular governments, earthly governments, as being part of the fallen world, as being corrupt, as essentially being directed by Satan.
0: That's Dr Zoe Knox. She's an expert on religious history including that of the Jehovah's Witnesses.
2: Much of what Witnesses do on a day-to-day level is shaped by their belief that Armageddon is just around the corner as
0: foretold in the Bible. But aside from academics, the people who are really experts on this are those who've lived it, former Jehovah's Witnesses.
1: We're living in the time of the end. God is very, very soon about to bring the Battle of Armageddon
0: It's hard to overstate how important this belief is to them and it's something they teach their children. You'll be hearing things read to you um, from a very young age about birds feasting off the flesh of those that have died at Armageddon. Armageddon was still a very, very real thing for me. You know, if it thundered really loudly, I'd be sat hiding somewhere thinking the world was ending. But there is an upside, which is that After Armageddon, when all the worldly systems have been destroyed, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that they, and only they, will enter paradise. Everyone else, whether they're Catholic or Buddhist or atheist or Muslim, anyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness, in other words, will die. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses go door to door, trying to convert as many people as they can. It's not academic to them. They believe that if they can convert someone to their faith then they're saving that person in a very literal way from being destroyed. And the new world, which Jehovah's Witnesses will establish after the apocalypse, sounds, well, it sounds like paradise. So everything's green and everyone lives in harmony and the animals don't eat each other and you don't have to be scared of anything or anyone. Children in the Jehovah's Witnesses grow up around vivid images of paradise. It's a lush green place, free from war, where you would be reunited with long-dead family members. Perhaps most excitingly for a small child, it's also a place where anyone can have an exotic animal for a pet. I used to want a giraffe and I used to want to call him Gizmo and raise him from a small baby and that was sort of what I looked forward to. as I'm going to have my own giraffe. This is all valuable context and will play a huge part in our story. But what we're interested in is harder to get to. And it's this idea that the religion has a hidden system of record-keeping. When we raise this subject with each of the sources we speak to, we hope that they will lead us a little bit closer to establishing whether what we'd been told in that first email was true. More than once, they tell us to look into a landmark legal battle, which played out in 2015... I still remember the first time I heard of the case. I was speaking to a former elder. That's a religious leader in the Jehovah's Witnesses. A bit like a priest. The man's name was John Viney, and we met for a coffee in central London. It was a windy day and we were sitting outside.
1: In fact, the first case that was ever in this country, she's A, I think, she was like the second or third person that was abused and that was what gave her the power to take down to court because... If they
0: had a-, a former Jehovah's Witness had been sexually abused as a child and she'd sued the religious organisation in the High Court for failing to protect her. It was a huge deal, the first case of its kind in Britain, and the young woman at its heart knows exactly how the Jehovah's Witnesses have failed children. She's anonymous, so we can't track her down in any of the usual ways but with help from her lawyer, I managed to get in touch. I'll make sure my phone's off. You tell us when we're good to go. Good. Good. On a cold day earlier this year, the woman comes to meet me in the Telegraph studio. She's called Victim A in court papers, but I'm going to call her Daria. That's not her real name. How are you feeling? Oh, yeah, All fine, right. a little bit nervous. Know, we'll but... Daria's a very glamorous woman who grew up in the Midlands. On the day we meet, she's wearing tight, fashionably ripped jeans and a satin shirt. Her hair looks expensively highlighted. You seem a very stylish woman. Like you look cool. Oh,
2: okay. yeah. yeah, well, I, I got into a lot of trouble because of the clothes
0: I wore, so maybe that was part of, that was part of the problem, because it was, yeah... It's cause, I'm assuming rips in your jeans are not... Or, in fact, jeans are not acceptable, are no, they? No, <laughs> like, no,
2: just general, yeah, general worldly, my worldly attire, yeah. I suppose it was always an act of rebellion anyway, so yeah. dre- dre- dressing well.
0: This story begins before Daria had any real capacity to rebel, when she was still a little girl in the late 80s. Her father had stopped being a Jehovah's Witness and there was division at home. But her mother, who I'm going to call Siobhan, was a devout member. Like many Christian groups, the Jehovah's Witnesses are extremely patriarchal. They believe that men have authority over women. And this left Daria's mother with a problem. So my mum was regarded as a
2: spiritual widow. Those are the ways of phrasing it, like be spiritually single. Um, but it, it's this whole thing of... If your husband isn't a Jehovah's Witness, then you have no spiritual head of your family and that's obviously seen as a very difficult situation for a woman to be in.
0: There was a man in the congregation who started to give Siobhan and Daria spiritual guidance. He was called Peter Stewart and he was a senior figure, an older man who had free time because he lived alone and who, on the face of it, Seemed a picture of respectability. An ex-public school boy,
2: um, spoke very well, always correcting people on their grammar. He had the white grey hair. He was always very smart, immaculately presented. I always remember that the suits he wore were always better quality than anybody else around the Jehovah's Witnesses. He um, he had emphysema. He had um, he had a brown inhaler, um, which I still hate inhalers. Peter Stewart was well liked within the congregation. I think some people would call him gentlemanly, some people would call him kind or have the appearance of kindness. I don't remember ever viewing him in that way. All I remember is knowing him, and then once you knew him and what he was really like, you I yeah, you certainly wouldn't be able to call him kind or gentlemanly.
0: Peter Stewart led most of Daria's religious study, so he quickly became a fixture.
2: All I knew was having, you know, this constant conveyor belt of either, you know, meetings to attend or meetings to prepare for or field service to go on. So he was always there. I can't remember a time really when when he wasn't
0: around. He would come round to our house um, to take the watchtower study. Watchtower's the name of the Jehovah's Witness magazine. Confusingly, it's also used as shorthand for the Jehovah's Witness organisation. And it was following
2: one of those sessions that he
0: began to abuse me. What follows is horrible. But if we're to understand what happened to Daria and the damage that child sexual abuse does, there is a certain amount we need to confront. At the bottom of our garden, there was a
2: shed at the back of the garage and I, there was a spider that lived in the shed that I'd I'd named. I can't remember the name of it now, but I, it was just for whatever reason. It fascinated me. And I went down there with him
0: to show him the spider. Daria was around three or four years old. She can't remember exactly. And it's hard for her to work it out because, unlike most people... She doesn't have birthdays or Christmas to mark time and look back on. But she does know it was before she started school. Um, And he lifted me up to
2: see the spider and as he did so he touched me between my legs. And he just asked me if I liked it afterwards and that was where it all began.
0: And how did things move on from there?
2: So it was every time that I would see him, he would find some opportunity uh, to do something. Um, What happened in terms of how far it got depended on how much privacy he could get um, and the location we were in. Um, And yeah, it just went into then a pattern of abuse that gradually got more and more severe.
0: As time went on, Peter Stewart's abuse progressed to rape. He abused her for around six years, multiple times a week, until 1994 when she was nine years old. Daria knew it was wrong, but like any child who's abused at an extremely young age, she couldn't fully comprehend what was happening. She felt that it was somehow her fault, and that she had sinned, which left her... Just desperately scared um, and sorry and just
2: that i'd done something really terribly awful and i was that was it i was going to die and i'd um every meeting that you attend would be a mention of armageddon there would be a mention so every single time there's a reminder that i'm going to be killed and god is very
0: angry with me for what i've done little daria was terrified Peter Stewart had made her feel responsible for the awful things he was doing to her, and she felt utterly unable to tell anyone. So she didn't. She kept quiet for years, and he continued abusing her. But then, when she was nine, something happened. Like a bolt from the blue, her abuser was gone. Peter Stewart had been arrested. We'll find out why after the break. Hello, Cara McGugan here, the executive producer of Call Bethel, and the host of another Telegraph podcast, Bed of Lies. For both these narrative series, we've spent months digging into complex scandals, sifting through long documents to find the truth, and giving victims the space to tell their stories. Making shows like these takes time, and we couldn't make them without the Telegraph subscribers. If you'd like to support our original journalism and read our award-winning coverage head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast, where you can get 30 days free access to The Telegraph online. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast, or click on the link in the episode description. It's 1994, and Daria's coming up to her 10th birthday. She's up in her bedroom at home when she hears a knock at the front door. Her mum goes to open it, and Daria can hear the voices of some of the elders of her congregation. I could hear them talking, and I could hear snippets of the conversation. Daria tries to listen in from her room. She hears Peter Stewart's name carry up the stairs and she's worried that the elders have discovered what he's been doing to her. She starts to panic about the repercussions she might face. It's not just the elders that terrify her. She still believes that she's going to die at Armageddon because of everything Peter Stewart has been doing. I thought, this is it, I've, I've been found out, I'm going to be in an awful lot of trouble. But to Daria's surprise, she wasn't told off that evening. And by morning, she'd worked out that it was in fact Peter Stewart that was in trouble said that they just couldn't believe it about Peter Stewart, that he could have done any of these things. Over the following days, Daria discovered Peter Stewart had been arrested. He went from being in her life almost all the time to vanishing entirely. But here's the thing. He wasn't arrested for abusing Daria for six years. She'd kept that secret. It turned out that at the same time as he was grooming and molesting her... The police had been investigating Peter Stewart for abusing another child, one of his relatives. The elders had visited Daria's mother that day and shared the news. Peter Stewart had helped her when she became a spiritual widow. And in an awful twist, Daria's mother, who still didn't know about her daughter's abuse, ended up being a character witness for Peter Stewart in court. So she gave a character witness at his trial and said that he'd obviously not abused
2: me when he had.
0: It wasn't enough to keep him from jail. Peter Stewart confessed to some of the charges and was found guilty on two counts of rape and three counts of indecent assault against a young girl. That a paedophile could be so prolific raises questions about whether Daria could have been protected Did anyone know the danger he posed? That he was abusing other children? It also made me wonder whether there might be a trail of evidence of what he'd been doing. But Daria didn't start asking these questions until much later. She just felt huge relief that the man who'd blighted her childhood was gone. It was like a miracle had happened, it really was. It was just, he was
2: no longer there and I could enjoy my life again. Over
0: the years that followed, Daria began to rebuild her life. It wasn't immediate. She spent most of the first year keeping herself to herself as she kind of recalibrated to her new existence without Peter Stewart around. But over time, she gained confidence and by the turn of the millennium, when she was around 15 years old, she'd started going into town with her friends, practising dance routines at school and generally doing what teenagers do. Tony Blair was in power, Jamie Oliver had just landed his first TV cookery show, and Britney Spears was topping the charts.
2: Yeah, I gotta love a bit of Britney. I think I still know, that I still know the dance to Hit Me Baby One More Time.
0: Uh, yeah, I spent hours at lunchtimes at school practicing that. She also started to distance herself from the Jehovah's Witnesses, the organisation that had shaped her life.
2: I obviously already had loads of friends who were very good at helping me just hide clothes and stuff from my mum so I could go (laughs) out. Because you had to literally get changed at the bus stop. It was because I had to go out. So even if I was going out in town, I would have to, with my friends, I would have to still wear a knee-length skirt to go out the door in. So, yeah, they were really good at bringing me mini skirts and stuff.
0: Then one day, around the millennium, when she was in her mid-teens, Daria was at the Kingdom Hall. That's a bit like a church. It was a day pretty much like any other. She still attended meetings at this point, but her misgivings meant that she was easily distracted. So I got
2: up during the meeting to go to the toilet, as I did quite a lot, because at this point
0: I was not finding the meetings easy to sit through. As she walked past the other members of the congregation, she was in for a shock. He was there at the back, Just six years after he'd disappeared from Daria's life, Peter Stewart had returned. It was just
2: terrifying. I, first of all, having the thought that he could just be at any meeting that I attended, I would just sit there frozen. I remember just staring, terrified to even turn around because I just didn't want to know if he was there. And if he was, at least I could convince myself during the meeting that he, you know, there's a chance he's not there today.
0: Her solution was to hide. She stopped going to school. In fact, she stopped going out at all. I just wanted to be in my bedroom where it was safe and that was it really. I just just cut myself off. There came a day that summer when Daria couldn't take it anymore and she needed to tell someone. She was ready to break her silence to her mother. I came
2: downstairs, like, mum, never going to talk about this guy.
0: She didn't go into much detail, but in the years since Peter Stewart had been in prison, she'd learnt the words for what had happened to her. I understood at that point it was sexual abuse, so that's all I shared with her. I was like, no, he's mm. he sexually abused me. Siobhan was shocked. It may seem odd, given that Peter Stewart had already been jailed for child abuse, but Siobhan hadn't believed a Jehovah's Witness could be capable of such a thing, not until that moment. She, in her mind, he was Jehovah's Witness, so he was innocent. But the fact that it had happened to her daughter changed her view. About a week afterwards, Daria was at home when an envelope fell on the mat. She saw her mother's name spelt out neatly in blue ink. I recognised his handwriting. I wanted to rip it off. I was really cross
2: with my mum for writing, because mm. she was not meant to ever talk about it again and really angry that he'd written back.
0: Without Daria knowing, Siobhan had written to Peter Stewart, telling him that she knew what he had done. He'd been entrusted with the family's spiritual growth. How could he have done something so evil? And I think, you know, he,
2: just, he said sorry for what he had done and he asked for forgiveness. It was all uh, just meaningless drivel really he certainly wasn't sorry and he certainly wouldn't have
0: thought twice about doing it again daria was angry with her mother and sickened by peter stewart but what they had now was a handwritten document which would surely be a compelling piece of evidence against him there's quite a lot to unpack here so i wanted to have a chat to one of my colleagues jack So, what I mean, at this stage, what did she do? Presumably she went straight to the police. The mother? Yeah. um, She didn't go straight to the police because there is this huge culture of mistrust of the outside world within the Jehovah's Witnesses. So, um, you know, that includes secular authorities. They believe that the non-Jehovah's Witness world is controlled by Satan. And so actually her first instinct is to go to one of the elders.
1: What did she expect that elder to do?
0: Well, she was really terrified that the congregation was going to welcome Peter Stewart back in again. Um, and that's because it doesn't matter how you leave the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you resign like he had done, or if you're kicked out over a disgraceful issue, there's a way back in if you're really sorry. Okay. Um, and so she was really worried that Peter Stewart would convince the elders that he had truly repented and that he'd be back in her daughter's life again. But she wanted to keep him out of the congregation, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what, what ended up happening? Well, so she told the elder, and then the elders asked Daria to write them a letter.
2: Just all I said in it was that between the ages of, I think I said four and nine, three and four and nine, um, Peter Stewart sexually abused me. I gave them no
0: detail. Strangely, Daria says, when she handed this letter over, it went missing. The elders asked her to write another. So she did. That went missing too. Do you think that was carelessness? Or do you think, why do you think it was lost? Either it was extraordinarily careless or something else. But that isn't the only part of the process that the elders mishandled. And this struck me when I first heard about it. This man has already been jailed for child sexual abuse. But when some of the elders put Daria's allegations to him, he denied it. And even with his written apology, it was treated as just a case of he said, she said. The Jehovah's Witnesses point out that all of this happened in the 1990s and procedures have changed a lot since then. But looking back, it seems strange that they didn't talk to more people who might have seen something. At this point, Daria felt hopeless She was terrified that the nightmare that had wrecked her childhood was about to begin all over again and that Peter Stewart would be welcomed back into her congregation. And that was the point where I was just like, okay, there's there's nothing else they
2: can do, there's no other evidence they can look at, and that's the end of... that's, that's it.
0: It seems astonishing to me that they didn't investigate further, especially now that I've seen Peter Stewart's apology letter. You see... It's taken me some time to get hold of this, but I've got a copy of it from Daria. Her husband keeps it hidden away from her at home, so she won't be re-traumatised. And even though I've spent months poring over the facts of her case, when I opened it, I still found it shocking to read. It's got this rather beautiful handwriting, in blue ink, sloping forward. It's very elegant. It's also quite tricky to read, but I've typed it out and I've asked my colleague, Mick Brown, to read it out to us. It's addressed to Siobhan, and it starts like this.
1: Dear Siobhan, Thank you for your letter, dated the 30th of May, which was delivered this morning. Words of regret and apology seem so inadequate in the situation I find myself in. Nevertheless, I must say how sorry I am that I too have abused the trust you gave me. I am genuinely sorry to have caused you this upset, How late and useless it must sound now to say I am sorry to Daria, but I am. Prison has taught me that. And it goes on. I am deeply grateful to Daria that she does not wish to take any legal proceedings against me. Do not let the actions of a pervert, yes, that is how I am now known, harm you in your future life. I can't undo what I have done and have to live with this.
0: Then he addresses Siobhan.
1: Another spell in prison would be my end. Please try not to blame yourself or feel ashamed over what has taken place. I am sorry my words of regret may not seem enough, but I can tell you they are most sincerely and deeply meant. Prison counselling and role-play may not have an effect on everyone, but I assure you that it has been beneficial in my case. From a practical point of view, mechanical operations over recent years and still ongoing will ensure that no one else suffers as you have both done at my hands. In sincerity, Peter Stewart.
0: I wasn't prepared for how horrible this letter is and how clear it is as a piece of evidence. You know, words like pervert and repeated apologies directed to Daria we've no idea whether what Peter Stewart claimed in it is true, that he wouldn't go on to abuse another child. But it's all you're going to hear from him in this podcast, because not long after he wrote this letter, he died. Over the years that followed, and armed with this letter, Siobhan kept on trying to convince the leaders of the congregation that what her daughter was saying was true. She took it to one of them, a man called Alan Orton, whom she regarded as a family friend. Daria remembers him as a slightly overweight man who often wore badly fitting suits, but who generally seemed like a well-meaning fellow, which made what happened next all the more shocking.
2: She took um, photocopies of the letter um, because she didn't entirely trust that it would be returned to her in one piece, um, which was... Certainly well thought out, because at one point, years later,
0: he took it off her and ripped it up. What we have here is an elder who appears to be deliberately ripping up evidence of child abuse. That's hard enough to understand on its own. But the thing is, there's something stranger, and if possible, even more disturbing, happening beneath the surface here. Because it turns out that this photocopied letter with its spidery handwriting and its admissions of guilt. It wasn't the only bit of evidence. Filed away within the Jehovah's Witness organisation, there was a much older record about Peter Stewart. A record that had been meticulously archived. A record that could have kept a little three- or four-year-old child from being left alone with a paedophile, week in, week out. A record that could be part of a much wider database. The one that we were given a tip about in that email. Coming up on Call Bethel.
2: I didn't want to believe that he'd lied to me all those years. He admitted that he knew um, and he'd known all along. Knowing that there was an opportunity for an organisation to have prevented a child from being abused lit a fire that I just wanted to learn everything that I could about it.
0: Can I ask whether you handed over the documentation that you have? About Call Bethel is written by me, Catherine Rushton, and produced by Pete Norton, The investigations team behind it are Claire Newell, Janet Easton, Jack Leather, Sophie Barnes and me. Executive producers are Cara McGugan and Theodora Leloudis. To stay on top of who's who in our story and to read exclusive news and behind-the-scenes details, head to the Telegraph website. We'll be publishing more every week at telegraph.co.uk forward slash callbethel. If you have any information that could help with our investigation, you can get in touch by emailing us, call Bethel at telegraph.co.uk, and if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber, sign up for thirty days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash Bethel podcast.